heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, as we study your word now together again, we pray that it might come forth to us with with such clarity and power that we would uh, truly stand in awe of you. God, that we would be taught, that we would be given instruction and things to do, things to believe, ways to think. But that most of all, we would see you standing forth in your word so that we might worship and adore you. This God who sent his only son and this God to whom all praise is due. So help us to stand in awe of you now from your word in Colossians 1. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if last week in verses 3 through 8, what Paul gave us was a thank you note, uh, this week what he's giving uh, us is one of those little notes that I used to uh, get when I missed Sunday school as a child uh, that said, we're praying for you. Uh, They would always send out a little note with a little child's picture or something on that to remind me they were praying for me that they miss me in class. And that's what this kind of a note is. It's a we're praying for you note. Uh, And we're going to talk most of the time tonight about what he's actually praying for uh, for these Colossian people. But that's what the note is about. It's a note of prayer in verses 9 through 14. Uh, And just like last week, uh, it is another run on sentence. So last week we had six verses, uh, one sentence, 102 words. This week we have uh, six verses and Greek students debate on whether it's one sentence that's 106 words or two sentences, one of which is 79 words and the other is 27 words. But either way you slice it, uh, again, we have Paul excited about what he's writing, so excited that he's getting it down as quickly as he can um, because he has so much good to say to these people and on their behalf to the Lord. Uh, And just by way of introduction, before we actually look at what he prays, I want you just to notice two general things about the way he prays for them before we go on. Uh, One is is his regularity in praying for them, and the other will be his reason for praying for them. His regularity for praying for them is that he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. And he also said in verse 3, we always are praying for you. I don't think that that means that he literally sat in his house or wherever he was 24 hours of the day and prayed for the Colossian church. But when he says we pray always for you, we pray without ceasing for you, what I think he means is that we regularly pray for you and there's never a time where we forget to pray for you. So maybe Paul had a list of people that he regularly prayed for so that he wouldn't forget. I don't know if he had a mental list or if he had a physical list, but he must have had some sort of a list of the kind of people that he regularly prayed for. And this isn't the only church that he said this about. And so I would just say, first of all, that that would be a good practice for all of us, wouldn't it? It would be good for us to be able to say to certain people, to certain other churches, to certain missionaries, to certain family members, whatever it is, we never cease to pray for you. 
Every week I pray for you. Or every day I pray for you. Not so that you can brag about how often you pray, but because you really do pray for that person or that ministry all the time. And you won't do that without a list. And so last week I encouraged you to get yourself a list or to use the church role as a list of prayer. And I encourage you again this week. That's the only way that you'll be able to pray without ceasing for people like these Colossian Christians. Um, So that's the regularity of his prayer. He was always praying for them. But the second thing is I want you to notice um, the reason for his prayer. And that's where he starts, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. For what reason? We pray for you for this reason. What's the reason? Well, the reason is what we said, what we saw in verse 8, where he speaks of Epaphras informing him, him being Paul, about their love, the love of the church uh, in the spirit. And he spoke, in, he spoke about that uh, more directly back in verse 4. He spoke of the love which they have for all the saints. And so he says, because you are a church uh, who has such a reputation for loving the saints, such a reputation for godliness, we pray for you. And so what he's, he's saying here is we don't just pray for people who really are messed up and have a lot of problems, but we also pray for this Colossian church who seems to be doing really well. In fact, the very reason we do pray for them is because they're doing so well. And so I think what we can learn from that is sometimes we need to be bandwagon jumpers when it comes to praying. Look around and see where God is at work, and we join God in that work. If we can't actually join Him in Colossae, we join by praying for the people of Colossae. So look around you and see people and ministries and churches where you know that God is at work and pray for them. Because the only reason that something is happening there is because people are praying and because God is working. So, two two lessons then from the way He prays. Have a prayer list and look around and see where God's already at work and join Him in His work, particularly by praying for those who are doing well in the Lord. Now, I want us to go on uh, for the rest of the time and think about what He actually prays for these people so that we can imitate Him in that as well and so that we can learn some lessons uh, from what He prays for for them and hope that we will live up to these kinds of prayer requests as well. Now, I want you to see that he's got one main prayer request. Okay, so this is a six-verse uh, prayer, 106 words, but there's one main request that he's making for them, and it is this. He says, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Everything else that he's going to say is going to flow out of that one request. But again, the request is, Lord, fill the church at Colossae with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. He wants them to know God and his will. He wants them to know spiritual things, spiritual truths. So the way we might say that in our modern context is, Paul wanted these people to be good, solid theologians. That's what he wanted for this, pe- this church. And I'll remind you again that this was a church meeting in someone's house in an out-of-the-way town, probably a small town, where generally the people wouldn't have been the up-and-comers, than the movers and shakers. And yet he's praying for these people, most of them far less educated than the average American today is. I want these people, God, and Colossae, to be good, solid knowers 
of the Scripture. Capable Bible students. That's what he's praying for. I want you to know what God's will is. I want you to have wisdom about it. And I want you to have spiritual understanding. And we get all those things from, from the Word. Uh, and so that's what he's praying. Make them Bible students. Capable Bible students. And I would just say to you, if that's his goal for this little out-of-the-way country church, then it would be his goal for us as well. Wouldn't it? There's no church on earth, actually, that he wouldn't pray this for. If he was praying for any given church, I think Paul would say, I want every church, I want every Christian to really know the Bible. I don't just want the pastors to be the experts. I want the congregations to be the experts because they're the ones that are actually out with the lost people in the world who need to be fed the word consistently on a daily basis. So I think that's what he's saying to them. I think that's what he's saying to us by extension. He wants God to make us solid theologians, Bible knowers. And I want us to just think real practically about what he might say if he was preaching to a group like this today about how to do this practically. What does it mean for us to actually begin to know God's will and to have spiritual wisdom and understanding? There's a lot of things we could say, but I'm just going to give you a few practical suggestions. And, and maybe, maybe you detect what I would say and, and more than what Paul would say. Um, but uh, I hope that I'm following his example. I think the first thing that he would say is every Christian ought to read their Bible every day if he lived in America. These people didn't have the benefit of having a Bible in their hands. Many of them probably couldn't read. The ones that could didn't have Books like this, paper wasn't so plentiful. There wasn't a printing press so that it, they could print off hundreds of Bibles and everybody could have one. Chances are this church had the letter to the Colossians and maybe a few other scraps from the New Testament. Somewhere they could have access to the Old Testament, I'm sure, because there would have been a synagogue in their town most likely. But maybe one or two copies of the Old Testament in their entire town. So for them to know the Bible, they had to come together every day. They had to make a lot of effort. They couldn't sit down on their couch in the evening and open up and say, well, let me read what Paul says to the Colossians today. But we can. And so I think if the apostles were, were living today, they would, they would scold us for the great advantages that we have and how little we take advantage of those advantages. I think he would say, have a Bible reading plan. And then maybe he would, he would give us, I will give us, uh, some other tools that go with that that will help you to understand this book. I gave some of these to my class on Sunday morning. I'm going to give them to you again today. One is, if you really want to understand the Bible and begin to be a student of the whole book, it would be good for you to have a concordance. You know what a concordance is? It's a book that has every Bible word in it and every instance that that word is used. And it tells you where it is and gives you a little blurb of the sentence. So that if you're looking to find out about repentance, you can find all the times where that word is used and then go look them up. Or if you're reading a passage and it has a word in it and you want to find out all the other places that use that word, you can go look it up. So get a concordance. Um, the best one I've seen uh, is, is Strong's Concordance, uh, which is for the King James but they have a new one called Strong Guest, um, kind of a play off of that man's name, that uses the New American Standard. You can find them at any Christian bookstore. Get a concordance, and that will help you. The second thing I would encourage you to do is, uh, along with your Bible reading, is get a, one of these Bible dictionaries. So you want to study repentance, you find all the places that it's used, but you want to, you want to get a good, solid definition. What does this word mean? 
Well, a Bible dictionary would be helpful. And it would not just tell you about words like repentance, but you might look up the name of some city and it will tell you things about that city. So here are two that, that I mentioned to my class and I'll mention to you. Unger's, U-N-G-E-R, apostrophe S, Bible Dictionary, and Holman Bible Dictionary. Both would be good, and again, you can get those at any Christian bookstore. And then last, uh, one of those map and custom guides, the, the books that tell you all about New Testament, first century type customs or Old Testament type customs, that would be helpful too. But I think what he's saying here is, I want you to really know this book. And we have lots of tools available to us that will help us know this book. If we would just determine that we want to read this book, then we'd be reaching for those tools because there's a lot in here that would intrigue us and make us ask questions. So that's one thing I think he would say. I think he would also uh, urge us uh, to develop a plan for Bible memorization. That's certainly one of the ways that the New Testament people and the Old Testament people had to learn the truth by memorizing it because they didn't have it always in front of them on paper. So I think he would say, memorize the Bible. I, read, I was reading a book this week, and one of the things that that author encouraged folks to do is to take your commute time every day. The average American has a 25-minute ride to work one way. So the average person has 50 minutes in the car every day that they can use to memorize Scripture. And just go over it and over it in your head and also get some of those Bible tapes uh, or so on. So you might, you might memorize a short book of the Bible. Uh, a friend of mine is memorizing Philippians right now. You might do that. You might memorize a short, short section. Romans 8, maybe the best chapter in the Bible to memorize. Memorize uh, a few verses uh, that are helpful to you. Uh, memorize verses that will help you fight specific sins that you're dealing with. But memorize the Bible. And then I think thirdly, um, being real practical about how we would know and understand and have a spiritual insight into the Word is that we would in our families and in our homes have regular family worship and devotion. Whether you have children or not, uh, the, the great practice of Reformation Christians since the 1500s until about the last hundred years has always been to have a daily family Bible devotion, complete with singing and prayer as well. But just reading a section of the Bible, talking about it as a family, um, praying for the family and for other concerns, singing together every day. You would know the Bible quite well and your children would learn it much better if we would do that. And then also on Sundays, especially when you have this whole day dedicated to the Lord, you sit down over lunch and say, let's talk about what we learned in Sunday school or what we learned in the worship service. Let's apply it to our own family. So take notes and say, what about point number 10 in his sermon? I said 10 on purpose. I know I preach long sermons, but what about point number 10? applies to our family. Let's talk this through. And you could spend an hour of your Sunday speaking about how God's Word actually applies to you. And I I think, uh, just real practically, maybe we should say turn off the television uh, during the week and read good Christian books, and you might become better students of the Bible. So, again, Paul's main request is, Oh God, make this church a church full of capable, spiritual wise understanders of you as they understand your word. That is his main request. Now, I want to ask a follow-up question. And that is, why did Paul want that? Of all things that he could pray for, why did he want that? If you read the Scriptures, you will find that God doesn't say knowledge is the most important thing to have, does He? Some of the most knowledgeable people in the world about the Bible aren't even Christians and wouldn't even claim to be Christians. 
And some of the most knowledgeable people in the world about the Bible are puffed up with pride about what they know. And Paul would say that in another book, 1 Corinthians 8.1. He says, knowledge puffs up. So why does he say knowledge is the one thing that he really prays for them? That's a good question. Well, let me first say that he didn't just want knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That's why we're going to read on about why he prayed that and why I said that everything else he says is going to undergird his request. The one request is, Lord, fill them with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But then he goes on and explains why he wants that. Verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's his real goal. His goal is not just to have a church full of eggheads. His goal is to have a church full of people who know the Scriptures well enough, who have a spiritual understanding of the Scriptures, so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So we want to know the Scriptures so that we can practically live the Scriptures. Paul's an intensely practical person. So he wants theologically astute people so that he may get the result of changed lives. We all recognize that Bible knowledge does not necessarily equate with spiritual maturity. Make sure you hear that. I'll say it again. Bible knowledge does not necessarily equate with spiritual maturity. Just because I can stand up here and talk about the Bible doesn't mean that I'm doing everything that I say or that I'm spiritually mature. But when we turn that around, we also have to say that There is no way for a person to be spiritually mature without having thorough Bible knowledge. So the two aren't the same, but one leads to the other. Knowing the Scriptures, knowing God through His Scriptures, leads to spiritual maturity if we learn them the right way. So the Bible uh, is here to do that for us. And I want to just give you two metaphors for the Bible that I'm going to try and draw back. Out of verse 9, the Bible is like a map and the Bible is like a compass for us. The Bible is like a map in that it lays out specific directions. Isn't that what a map does? You want to find out how to get from here to Morrow, Ohio. You open up your Rand McNally map and it tells you how to get there. Uh, And if you need more specific instructions, maybe you go on the computer and you get a map of the little individual streets in the town of Morrow. And you figure out, this is how I get where I'm going in Morrow. A map tells you exactly where you need to go. And that's what the Scriptures are. That's why he says he wants them to know what the will of God is. God has a very specific will about all sorts of things. And we need to know what that will is so that we can follow that path and get where we're supposed to. To go, The people who don't have the map, the people who don't have the book, cannot go where God is telling them to go because they do not know how to get there. <coughs> but it's also true with the Bible and with a map that sometimes all the details that you would like aren't there, right? Have you ever had a map? If you've been driving, maybe it's not so in Ohio, but if you're driving in Mississippi, uh, you can be driving down a road and there are no road signs. Uh, So the map doesn't do you any good. Or you can be driving down a road and there's a sign on the road, County Road 2067. And you look on your map of that county and 2067 is not on the map. It's a dirt road or maybe they just forgot about it or maybe it's been built since the map came out. Sometimes the map doesn't have everything you need. It's the same thing with the Bible, right? 
Sometimes you get down the road in life and the Bible has all sorts of principles that are helpful, but it doesn't say anything specific about what you're supposed to do when somebody rapes your child, does it? It doesn't have a section on when that happens. It doesn't have a section on what to do when you're sick and in the hospital and the doctor says, hey, we either have life support to offer you or we can just let you live and see what happens. It doesn't tell you what to do every time in that situation. And so sometimes you can't just go to the Bible and find a specific verse that says, when in a situation, do X. You have to have wisdom. That's what he means by this spiritual wisdom and understanding. Enough knowledge of the whole Bible that you can make a wise biblical decision, even when the Bible doesn't give you X, Y, Z, this is what you should do. And that's what a compass is like, right? So if you're out in the woods, you want a map, but you also want a compass in case the map doesn't tell you everything exactly like you need to know it. Because the compass always points north. And if you can figure out where north is, then you can figure out where the road is where you parked your truck and you can get back to the vehicle when you're lost. The Bible is like that. As well, So we need to not just memorize a bunch of little verses and think we have all the answers. We need to be thorough students of the whole book so that it functions like a compass. So that matter, no matter where we are, our feet and our heart are always pointed towards truth. And we can make wise and discerning decisions. Now, let me give you a review of what we said so far, just from verses 9 and the first part of verse 10. What we said so far is that seeing an already maturing church in Colossae, Paul prays for them, and this is what he prays, that they would have an informed and a renewed mind so that they would be able to walk worthy of the Lord. He wanted God to grant them learning that would lead to having a spiritual impact on their living. And it's a worthy prayer for us to imitate. We ought to pray this kind of thing for ourselves and for those in our church and for those that are around us in the world that don't know the Lord. God, grant that person a knowledge of your word greater this week than they had last week so that they can live rightly, so that they can believe rightly. Now, what he's going to do with the rest of these verses is he's going to go on and give five practical ways that he wants to see their living impacted. And these aren't instructions. These are, again, his prayer for them. So he's telling them what he's praying so that they can say, oh, well, this is the right thing. But he's not coming down with these hard commands and saying, do this or else. What he's saying is, I realize you need God's power if you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So I'm going to tell you that I'm praying for you, for God's power. And I'm going to tell you what I'm praying that God would do in you so that you can know that God is working and so that you can follow in his steps. So five ways that he hopes their learning will impact their living. Um, and then after the fifth one, then we'll review and be done. Number one, he, he offers up a prayer uh, that their whole lives would be dedicated to the Lord. That's what he means when he says to please him in all respects. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him, verse 10, in all respects. When he says in all respects, I don't think that's so much a prayer for perfection. God, don't ever let them make a mistake, although he would pray that. But I think what he really means when he says to please him in all respects is it's a plea for God 
to, to work in such a way that their lives in every single nook and cranny would be pointed towards God. That in every respect of their life, they would want to be pleasing to the Lord. Not just in the little religious sections on Wednesday night and Sunday morning, but that in everything that they do, God would be the goal. So just think about some examples. He wants them to be enjoying God and glorifying God in the way that they work in their gardens. He wants them to enjoy and glorify God in the way that they write reports for school, in the way that they write when they send a letter to a friend, in the way that they participate when they come to the corporate worship, in the way that they discipline their children, in the way that they select entertainment for their family. In every area of life, he wants the truth of God to reach into the farthest corners of the rooms of their life so that everything that they do is pointed back towards God and oriented towards God and towards His truth. That's what he means when he says elsewhere, whether you eat, or whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The point of those verses is that all of life is devotion to the Lord. All of life is worship. So whether you're working at a factory or whether you're flying a jet airplane or whether you're preaching a sermon, you are to do that unto the Lord and God is pleased with it and God accepts it as your worship of him. And that means in everything that you do, you ought to consider your ethics. Is what I'm doing and the way I'm doing it ethical, biblical? Is my job ethical and is the way that I carry out my job ethical? You ought to also consider your attitude in everything you do. You may be doing wonderful things with a lousy attitude and you're not doing them unto the Lord. So in everything, our ethics ought to be right, our attitude ought to be right, our effort ought to be right. Everything you, you do, you ought to do it to the fullest extent of your ability and what's wise. So uh, let me clarify that. Um, sometimes it may be wise for you to do something in a brief way so that you can do a more important thing in a full way. So I'm not saying if you're mowing your grass that you should always spend six hours cutting your grass. That probably would take away from your family. But what it is saying is, if you're going to cut your grass, do it well as unto the Lord. And if you have two hours to give to cutting to your grass, if that's what you deem is wise, then use those two hours to the best of your ability. If you're going to spend time with your family, be all there. Whatever you do, let all of your effort point to the fact that there is a God in heaven who is watching what you do and who cares about all the little details of your life and wants to see you do well and wants to see you serve Him. And then finally, your aim in everything you ought to do ought to be towards the Lord. That's the most important, isn't it? If your aim is, I want to glorify God with the way that I plant these flowers, I want to glorify God with the way that I raise my kids, then your effort will be in the right place and your ethics will be right and your attitude will be right if your aim is God. So I think what he's saying, first of all, is God, give these people a sense that their whole life is worship. And worship is not confined to little bits and pieces. It's not confined to people who have a religious vocation, but it's confined to everything that we do. The second prayer uh, would be a prayer I think that they find their specific niches of kingdom service. He wants them, towards the end of verse 10, to be bearing fruit in every good work. So he talked about, in all respects, plural, kind of a broad brush, and now he's talking about every good work. I think he's getting more specific here. 
individualizing things with the phrase every good work. So he wants them to practice this whole life worship to the Lord. But as a part of that, he wants them to find their specific areas of gifting and ministry and to do those as well as they can. That's what I want for you and for me. That's why we spend this time doing this um, servant ministry roster thing every fall where we list all these things and we say, here are the deals, and if there's something that's not on here that you really feel like the Lord is calling you to do, let us know because we want every single person in this church to have an opportunity to say, here's how God has gifted me and here's how I think I should be serving the people in the church and the people outside through the ministry of the church. And there are other things that are unconnected to that that you do on your own as well. But the point is, every single Christian and every single church ought to want to be doing some sort of ministry for the Lord to other people. Sometimes within the church, sometimes without. So let me give you a few examples, and I hope some of these will help click in your mind of what it is that God has called you to do and gifted you to do, so that if you've forgotten about it, that you will get back on the trail to bearing fruit in every good work. Personal evangelism. Sharing the gospel with those around you. He's called most of, all of us to, to do that. To pray for those people. To share with them. To pass them things that might be helpful to them. Some people he's called to teach Sunday school. Or help in Sunday school. Giving you an ability to teach. If you're not using it, you're not bearing fruit in every good work. Or vacation Bible school. Same thing. Some people he is gifted and called to be generous givers. And that's one of their big ministries in the church and outside the church. If that's you, make sure you're doing that. Some people he's called to be prayer warriors. I think particularly of, of older folks who are at home and who aren't working anymore, who aren't able to work, and they have all day, or teenagers who have all summer long to do nothing but play video games and go to your job for a few hours a week, spend time in prayer. And the rest of us who have bits and pieces of the day set aside, we ought to be praying. And some of us, God has really called to make that one of our life's ministries, and we ought not miss out on that. Some of us, he's gifted to counsel other people, either through one-on-one interaction or accountability groups or through writing encouraging notes, and we ought not to miss out on that either. Some of us, he's given the time and the ability to visit the sick or to serve the homeless. There's a, a thousand different things But he wants us to be bearing fruit in every good work. Now, we don't need to be intimidated by the word every, as though to think that each one of us has to be doing everything. He's speaking to a whole church here. And what I think he's saying is, whole church, there is a set body of work that I have for this church to do while you're here on the earth. And so the whole church and all the individual members of it are there to accomplish every good work. So not every member has to accomplish every work, but the church as a whole does. But the church as a whole is made up of individuals, isn't it? And so if one member of our church refuses to use the gifts that God has given them to accomplish every good work, then our church will not do what Paul is praying for this church to do. Every good work means every member has to be doing their good work or works. So he prays that for them. Thirdly, he prays for spiritual death. He prays that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 10. As we said before about walking worthy of the Lord, we say here, knowing the Bible does not necessarily equate with knowing God. So 
Get that straight up front. Just because you know this book well doesn't mean that you know God. But again, the flip side is true. You cannot know God at all unless you know the Bible. So knowing God himself comes from knowing the Bible. And he's saying here, one of my goals for you in your walking worthy is that you would walk in such a way as to walk closely, more closely every day and every year with God, that you would know him yourself intimately, that you would have a genuine friendship with him. So I'll just ask you, could you say, I'm increasing in my knowledge of God. I'm increasing in my relationship with God. I'm more friendly. I'm on a more friendly basis with God now than I than I was a year ago. Could you say that? Let me give you a few questions that might help you answer it. Yay or nay. Is your Bible reading more alive in general now than it was a year ago. I realize there are days when you come to it and you say, I'm not getting anything out of this. But in general, when you come to the Scriptures, are you seeing more of God? Are you getting more of God than you were a year ago? Another question, is your prayer life more natural now than it was a year ago? Or is it still forced? How could I possibly pray for 15 minutes? That's crazy. What can I say to God for 15 minutes? Or can you just talk to God? Or you're at least growing in your ability to talk to God. Third, are your thoughts more readily turned to God? Do things in creation, things that people say, things that you read on the billboard, things that come across your email, things that happen in your family, more readily pointing you to God, either to worship Him or to cry out to Him in prayer or to think about truths that you see illustrated in the world Are your thoughts more readily turned to God than they were a year ago? Is your conscience more tender? One of the great things about growing, one of the the most sure evidences that you're growing in the faith is that you feel worse about yourself as you grow deeper. Christians who grow deeper don't feel better about themselves. They feel worse about themselves and better about God. So they're actually happier as they grow, but their happiness is coming from a different source. So instead of being over here, little happiness in God and great happiness in myself, as they grow, it moves like this to where there's very little happiness about myself, but great, great, great happiness about God and about the gospel. And then a last question, are God's promises more realistic to you now than they were a year ago? You read promises in the scriptures now, do you go, of course God's going to do that. It's in his word. I'm just going to live like it's true because it is true. If those things are happening, then you might be able to say, yes, I'm increasing in the knowledge of God. I'm drawing closer to him. I'm knowing him better. I'm able to trust him more. If not, you might need to go back and rethink. So his third request is that they would increase in the knowledge of God. His fourth request... (coughs) is that they would have strength to endure, that they would be strengthened, verse 11, with all power according to His glorious might. Why do they want to be strengthened? For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. I'll just be brief here and say this. God wants His people to increase in stick-to-itiveness and steadiness and decrease in anxiety and in the tendency to give up. God doesn't want you to have the tendency to give up. He wants you to have the tendency to press on. And so Paul is praying for that. He wants us to increase in our patience with God and our rest in God and decrease in our worry and our frustration and our ability to take matters into our own hands. 
You're the kind of person, I'm this kind of person. When something's going wrong, I want to take matters into my own hands because I'm a fixer and a doer. If that's how you are, one of the ways you can tell you're growing is if you learn to go, no, I'm not going to grab that. I'm going to let God have that. That you would really be able to take it to the Lord in prayer and leave it there. That's what he's praying for here. That you would have strength to endure. Strength for steadfastness and patience. And then his fifth and final prayer request is this. All these under walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Number five, a prayer for gratitude for the grace of God. He wants them to be joyously giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is one area where I will say that I see many people in our church growing, and I'm excited, thrilled about it. I see many of, for many of you, Christianity is becoming less and less about what you are supposed to do and more and more about what Christ has already done. And that's exactly right, because Christianity is a religion based much, much more on, on God's grace and our gratitude for it than it is on productivity and programs and getting stuff done. Grace gets stuff done. And so we focus on God's grace and we have gratitude for God's grace. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. So that's what he's praying that they would realize, that they would have a heart that gives thanks, not a heart that points and says, look how much we've done or look how much we haven't done, but a heart that says, look how much God has done for us who are so undeserving. Why should they be... Why should they be grateful? Just walk as we get ready to close through verses 12 through 14 with me. Why should they be grateful first? Because God has qualified them, verse 12, who were unqualified to share in His light. Because God has given them a share in the inheritance of the saints, these people who had by their sin disinherited themselves. God has rescued them, verse 13, these people who were perishing, God has given a kingdom to them, these people who were beggars. God has granted redemption, verse 14, to them who were slaves. God has forgiven their sins, these people who were, without a doubt, guilty. And all those things through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If we can't be grateful for that, then we're not Christians. So Paul prayed... This, here's our summary. Lord, grant that church Bible knowledge so that it would lead to genuine Christian living. Namely, God, that they would dedicate every area of their lives to you, that they would find their individual areas of service for you, that they would all grow deeper in their relationship with you, that they would have strength from you to endure the difficulties of life and to place their cares into your hands. And fifthly, that they would exhibit ultimate gratitude for grace lavished on them in Jesus. That's his prayer for them. It's very simple. You remember anything, remember this. He prays that they would have wonderful learning that would lead to wonderful living. Now, instead of closing with a song... Uh, What I've done is I've tried to take everything that I've said from what Paul has said and I've written out a prayer that I want to pray for you um, based on these verses 
Colossians 1, 9 through 14. So I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray this prayer for you and then make an announcement and we're dismissed. Lord, I thank you for Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. And I love Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. And I love the way you are teaching us to love all the saints. And for this reason, I pray that you would bless us. For this reason, I pray that you would let us become wise and understanding and thorough students of your word to the end that we might walk worthy. Lord, grant that we would not just have knowledge that puffs up, but that you would grant us learning that would impact our living. God, under that request, I pray first that you would grant that we would do whatever we do heartily as for you and not for men, that we might be pleasing in all respects. Lord, I pray that each one would find his or her specific gifts and callings and areas of service so that we would bear fruit in every good work. Lord, I pray that you would help us grow in spiritual depth, that we would, like Enoch, walk with God, increasing in our knowledge of you and our relationship with you. I pray that you would grant us to be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for the obtaining of steadfastness and patience, that each one of us would grow, Lord, in our ability to present our requests to you and leave our requests with you and not take them into our own hands. Lord, I pray finally that you would grant that Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church would be a church known for its gratitude in the grace of the gospel of Jesus. Lord, that in Christ alone our hope would be found. That we would not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but that we would boast only in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. I pray, Lord, that we would glory only in our Redeemer. I pray that all our hope and peace would be in nothing but the blood of Jesus. I pray that our great high priest and not our own works would be our strong and our perfect plea. I pray that Christ would be our inheritance now and always. And I pray that we would rest completely in the joy of what Jesus is for us. And to him we give all praise both now and forever. Amen. Colossians 1 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good way.